And uh, he will entertain you at best, at as well best. as educate you, okay? So, I'll try Raj, to do both. Is that okay? Please, entertain, okay, educate? Thank you. I've, I've written a book on addiction. I want to pass it kind of through. Use the arrows to go back and forth. Huh? And so to support what Terry's talking about with addiction types and the gambling addiction, there's a little addiction tree right here. And uh, if you kind of pass that, you can have a look at that some other areas. It talks about these, all these branches of addiction. Um, I have a game changer today. It's my honor to be here today with you guys. Yes, they do have your sure. handout in there too. Okay, so, good. And so... Um, I'm a therapist at Spring Therapy Center. I own it it's in Rochester Hills, Michigan. I do life coaching. I do interventions. I'm the uh, go-to guy if your kid is on heroin and you have a family member that uh, is dealing is uh, using drugs and in big trouble. I'm the guy to go to. I don't say no to any crying moms. Some of my clients have their own private jet airplanes, and some of my clients are on food stamps. But if a mom comes to me and their kid's hooked on heroin. They need an intervention, they get that for free if they have no money. It's very important. We don't turn down crying moms at my office. Uh, Brighton Hospital for three and a half years, and now I'm over at Serenity, and this presentation is about you know, interactive cards. Um, I consider myself an addiction killer, and, and so what do I mean by that? Um, at one point when I was sober, one of my close friends, Jerry, died of a heroin overdose. So his wife, Kimmy, we all went to the same kind of school, and uh, Kimmy was married to Jerry, and Jerry died of an overdose, and Kimmy calls me on the phone, and says, Jerry died of an overdose. And I go, Kimmy, I'm so sorry to hear that. She goes, well, the story gets worse. I go, how the fuck can the story get worse? Mm -hmm. She's like, I'm pregnant. I go, no, Kimmy. She goes, I'm doing heroin, too. I go, I'll be over your house in 20 minutes. And I took her to her first NA meeting that evening. I helped get her sober. And at some point along the process, you know, obviously we buried my friend. And Kimmy was doing really well. Baby was born healthy. We had a um, special high-risk pregnancy doctor that worked with her. And I was there for the Godfather ceremony at St. Anastasia's Church in Troy. So there I go up to the, sit in front of the church there at 9 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday. Kimmy's still wearing her wedding band. My family's there. Jerry's family's there. Kimmy's family's there. The priest is about 70 years old. He looks over at me. He goes, who are you? And I go, I'm the Godfather. Looks at Kimmy and he sees a wedding band and goes, where's the father at? She goes, well, he can't be here today. So he takes a child out of her hands and he walks away and he goes, I can't understand why the father of this Christian child is not here on the most important day of this Christian child's life. And Kimmy just has a breakdown. She goes, because he died of a heroin overdose. She grabs this arm. She's sobbing uncontrollably, soaking wet with tears on this sleeve right here. That was called an epiphany. I suddenly had this realization. Addiction had killed my friend and what am I going to do about it? And I got really, really angry. I wanted to put my hands on addiction and let him feel my pain. But he wasn't kind of floating around, so I made up my mind. I'm going to try to get into grad school, and I'm going to try to be a therapist and help other people. And that's what happened. That's why I've written the book. And I've also done something a little bit further. i got a very difficult job. You guys do, too. And it's my honor to be here, and I thank you for being here and listening to what I have to say. Um, i got to sell recovery. Drugs and alcohol sell themselves. Let me be honest with you. Like some people that sell drugs will tell you, I can do anything. Huh, that's not true. Nine out of ten drug dealers can't do anything but sell drugs because drugs sell themselves. Right. Now, there's one-tenth, uh, one out of ten of those people actually has a real skill set. Right. So here's the thing. Recovery is very difficult to sell. I walk into a classroom. I got one hour of their time. I go to Novi High School. I go to U of M. I go to different colleges. I go to lockdown facilities. I got to get in front of a whole bunch of people and in one hour try to convince them that drugs and alcohol are bad and recovery is really cool. That's really difficult to do. And so I've done that in different ways. I got super cool t-shirts in case you haven't seen them with drug-free fists on the, on the front and a big fuck addiction on the back. Now I give this to a 15-year-old kid, right, in front of his mom. And mom's like, I don't really like your shirt, Raj. And I just trust the process. And then when she leaves, I text mom. I say, make sure you complain about me and tell your 15-year-old pot-smoking kid I don't really like that therapist. He swears too much. And as soon as she does that, what do you think he says? I want to see him again. Right? Yeah. Right. And then 30 days later, he's wearing my T-shirt to our session. He's got 30 days sober. I go, Mom, how do you feel about that T-shirt? She goes, Raj, I love that T-shirt. we got to market. we got to sell recovery, and it's very, very difficult. Because remember, drugs and alcohol sell themselves. 
Uh, they get people high and they change how they feel. So I want to give this to Nancy. It's got my song, Fortune Papers of Bold on it. It's a recovery theme song. If you guys go to my website, serenityhelp.com, you can download the song, Fortune Favors the Bold, ties into the Gladiator motto. I have all kinds of free audio on there now, and also a free video, Addiction 101, on YouTube. Helps a lot of people, all right? Down arrow? Yeah. All right. So you kind of heard this, License to Kill, um, State of Michigan. My LMSW is my License to Kill. I told a kid that one time, he got kind of confused. What does that mean? My LMSW, he goes, what is that? I go, it's my License to Kill Addiction. All right, cool, right? Um, my philosophy is kind of in there, too. The book's on Amazon.com. If you email me, I'll give you a free PDF of the book. I got no problem doing that. I'm just trying to get this stuff out there. Um, tying back into, like, addiction, all kinds of stuff, I have a big problem with the DMS-5, and is a really big problem with that, in case you guys didn't know that, that withdrawal intolerance that occurs under a doctor's care does not meet criteria for dependence. So wait a second, I can only be an addict if I buy my shit off the streets, and if I'm seeing a medical doctor and I'm strung out to the gills on oxys and morphine and fentanyl, I can actually be dependent, which means like, what can I really do to that person when I go to court and I say, this guy got me hooked on drugs, and they say, well, not by this new definition. Imagine having your daughter go to a, a doctor, and the doctor rapes your daughter in the waiting room. And you go to court, and they go, Look, this guy raped my daughter in the waiting room. They say to you with a straight face, well, the definition of rape has changed, and for doctors, that definition doesn't meet criteria. It's amazing we allow that kind of stuff to happen. I'm not saying that there's a conspiracy, but you've got to think about this stuff. How do we go for like 60 years with a standard criteria for dependency, and all of a sudden we accept this new criteria for dependency that if a medical doctor is giving that drug, and you have tolerance and withdrawal from it, it doesn't count as dependency. It doesn't count as addiction. Please tell me it's kind of pharmaceutical lobbyists. Right, right. So I'm just drinking the beans. Is that okay? Don't get, get in trouble. Get in trouble. Remember, I have a weird part of my life right now. I actually get in trouble for telling the truth. It's very confusing to me. So when I say these facts, you know, if I tell you it's like 70 degrees outside, please don't get angry at me. I'm just stating facts, right? Right, BJ? Okay. All right. So. What is a disease? People will tell you all kinds of nonsense. Addiction isn't disease. This gambling thing isn't disease. It's theft. Here's the thing. According to the American Medical Association, a disease meets true criteria. If a disease exists, it must have symptoms and be treatable. Symptoms aren't enough. It must be treatable. It doesn't mean it can be cured. It can be treated, put into remission. So cancer has symptoms and it's treatable. Diabetes, high blood sugar, treatable with insulin, right? Meets the criteria for a disease. So when I tell parents, I don't believe my kid has a disease. They choose to put the drug in their system. I said, this is a very complicated thing. It's not black and white. But here's why it's a disease. Your child has symptoms and it's treatable. Is that making sense? Mm -hmm. So it defeats the argument in three seconds and we're done with that. It's more than the common cold. <laughs> right, right. Well, the common cold kind of goes away by itself. Yeah. Do you guys have the Stockholm Syndrome handout in your, in your packet? Is that one in there? Yep. Awesome. So I'm more interactive. I'm going to need help to do this, okay? So if you don't mind, I'm going to get kind of a preacher here. And if someone could voluntarily read the first paragraph of Stockholm Syndrome, we can get started. And if not, i got extra copies of it here. So if someone doesn't have a copy of it, and I'm going to pass through the lyrics to Fortune Favors the Bold as well. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah, go ahead, please. For six days in August 1973, thieves Jan, Eric Olson, and Clark <coughs> Olson held four Stockholm bank employees hostage at gunpoint in a vault. When the victims were released, their reaction shocked the world. They hugged and kissed their captors, declaring their loyalty even if the kidnappers were carted off to jail. They insisted that their kidnappers should receive the lightest sentence possible and advocated for their release. All right, so let's talk about this for a second, right? I do this handout oftentimes with trauma victims, right? Once we talk about a little bit of trauma, I say, what do you guys know about Stockholm Syndrome? And oftentimes people say, well, I don't know anything about Stockholm Syndrome at all. And so if I've identified a trauma or some PTSD type stuff going on, I say, well, let's kind of figure out something together here, right? And so I asked the person, okay, imagine if you were in a bank vault for six days against your will, right? Someone puts a pistol to your head, you eat really bad food, no shower for six days, and you finally get released from that predicament. What would be a healthy response to the police officers? What should a normal, logical person say to the cops once they're out of those circumstances? Thank you. Yeah, thank you. And 
lock those fuckers up forever. They ruined my life. I probably got PTSD. Now I got to go see Raj for a year. Right? Okay, so this is not logical. Who wants to read the next paragraph? Sorry for swearing. Oh, I'm okay. Who wants to read the next paragraph? People suffering from Stockholm Syndrome come to identify with and even care for their captors in a desperate attempt to make sense of their mistreatment. It occurs in the most psychologically traumatic situations. Often hostage situations or kidnappings and the effects usually do not end when the crisis is over. In these cases, victims continue to defend and care about their captors even after they escape captivity. Symptoms of Stockholm Syndrome have also been identified in the slave-master relationship, in battered spouse cases, in members of destructive cults, and in addiction. So at this point in the conversation with the person, I'll say to them, have you ever heard about who the abolitionists were back in the days of slavery? And half the time they would know what that would mean. But abolitionists were people that were really, really against slavery. They were willing to risk their lives to prevent slavery from happening. They would advocate against it, and they were part of the Underground Railroad. They actually helped buy slaves their freedom and risk their lives doing all kinds of stuff. So I began to talk about the idea that some of the people that owned slaves really didn't like the abolitionists, right? And the problem with the abolitionists, they had some very good spiritual, logical arguments against slavery. At some point, they really began to piss off these slave owners to the extent they had to find a new way to fight back. And so this has been documented. At some point in American history, these slave owners would bring in usually a house slave and put him at a podium and bring him to a town square. And invite a whole bunch of people there and say, hey, by the way, you guys are so anti-slavery, but what do you even know about slavery? You don't know anything. You've never been a slave. You've never even owned a slave. Let's ask the slave how he feels about slavery. And usually bring the house slave in who had the better conditions, you know, wore the master's leftover garments and also ate his scraps. And what would that man say at that podium? Anybody want to guess or speculate? I'll have a good life. Slavery is a fantastic thing. Please don't get rid of slavery. Where would I live? Where would I go? What would I do for a living? I would have no home. My slave master loves and cares about me. I feel like I'm part of his family. Please don't get rid of this. What would I do? So your first thought when you hear somebody saying that is, well, they got to say that shit because if they don't, when they go back, they're going to get a beating. But it's more complicated than that. Imagine if someone shows up in your village and they handcuff you and they shackle you up. And they pick you from your village and your tribe and look you right in the face and say, you now belong to me. If you actually process what that means in your mind, you might have a complete mental breakdown. So what your mind does from going, prevents itself from going psychotic, it changes reality. In this new reality, one day you're going to be free. In this new reality, being a slave won't be so bad. In this new reality, maybe you're supposed to be a slave because you look different than somebody else. Whatever you got to do to kind of justify getting through that moment. We call that internalizing your own oppression. We see in people that vote against their economic interests. We see this all kinds of other areas and social phenomena. We also see it in addiction as well. So we kids, like, I mean, we're talking more about adults here, but yeah. kids, like, if the Child Protective Services come to pull the kid away mm -hmm. out of an abusive situation, very often the kids don't want to go. Absolutely. They have a loyalty. They have a fear yes. of the unknown. Mm -hmm. They often maybe blame themselves. Yeah. It's complicated. Kids will cry if you pull them out of a bad home, and kids will cry if you pull them out of a good home. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're, they're, they're loyal like that. Mm -hmm. that that's part of that, that child-parent relationship, and that runs deep. Who wants to read the next paragraph? You need a volunteer fortune favors the bold. Somebody, please. Thank you. The prisoner comes to truly believe that the captor is their friend, that he will not kill her, that, in fact, they can help each other get out of this mess. The people on the outside trying to rescue her seem dangerous and not her allies. Outsiders are going to harm the captor who is now her friend. The fact that the hostage taker could care less about her and would kill her in an instant is lost in the process of self-delusion. We see it in domestic violence all the time. So people that do and think things against their best interests have internalized their own oppression. When I do interventions, you guys, by the way, when a person tells you someone has to be ready to get sober, that's not true anymore. That's an antiquated notion. I meet people all the time that look at me and say, I'm not going to rehab. I don't want to stop using drugs. In fact, those are people that I always see when I do an intervention. And so my job is to make your using as miserable as possible that you want to go to rehab. It doesn't sound very nice, but here's why we do this. When you're shooting heroin, right, and, and you tell me, I know what I'm doing, I got high self-esteem, right, and, and, your, and your behavior doesn't match your statements. I'm trained to hunt for discrepancy. It doesn't make any sense when you stick a needle in your arm and say we're having good times here and there's no problems here and this is going to be okay and this is sustainable. 
Like you mentioned before, if a person comes to me and says, I'm going to kill myself. I'm required as a professional to call an ambulance and say there's a guy actively suicidal in my office. Mm -hmm. If someone comes to my office and says, I'm going to kill somebody and I got a plan, I got to call you know, the ambulance and the police and say there's a guy who's going to kill somebody here. If you come in in my office and you got track marks up and down your arm and you look at me with a wink and a smile and you say, Raj, over a six-month period, I'm going to overdose and die. Not sure what day it's going to be, but it's going to be happening sometime in the future. I can't do anything, right? By that model, I can't do anything. So suicide is the acuteness of the suicide, right? Mm -hmm. But the heroin is so pure right now and so good, it's killing people like, like flies. And so I see that as active suicidal ideations, right? And active practice of being suicidal. So when we do an intervention, especially for heroin, I'm not interested in your ideas. Your best thinking told you to put a needle right. in your arm. I'm not trying to be mean here. And they get really angry. Why do they get really angry at me in particular? I'm the lightning rod for all their anger. That's how a good intervention is supposed to be. Mm -hmm. A lot of the parents and, 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 and kids that kind of duck under the radar, and he gets really angry at me. It could say he or she, but why is that? What am I doing? I'm taking away their best friend. I'm walking into their life, and they're a three-year-old with a security blanket. Right. And I walk in, and I go, I'm controlling your mom and dad, and you can't go home today. We're going to call your boss if you don't go along with the plan here. And by the way, we're going to make your using so miserable. You don't want to get high. We're going to make your sobriety so easy. You want to go to meetings. I'm taking away that security blanket. And they get really, really upset with me. And that's okay. Because, you know, five days later, seven days later, at Brighton Hospital when I used to work there, and I go to get my water bottle filled up. And one time I saw a young woman running at me. And I thought to myself, I just did an intervention on her six days ago. This could be either really good or this could be either really bad. Here's higher power. Look out for me on this one. And she jumped and she grabbed me and she said, you saved my life. This was the same young lady that said, you motherfucker, you ruined my life. I love my heroin. Get out of my house. Six days can do that. I'm not exaggerating. So remember, nobody needs to be ready to get sober. We don't have time anymore. The, the way that the compression of addiction has gotten going on, we got 18-year-olds you know, that have the da damage and, and pathologies of a 40-year-old drug abuser. Right? Right. Everything is time compressed now. Is that yeah. making sense? We used to say, uh, when they get ready, yeah. when they get bombed, by that time they're mm -hmm. dead. Mm -hmm. You have time for that. That's why interventions do work, because we can make your using that miserable. Even uh, like this is the Stockholm thing, this is uh, like... You know, because we have a lot of wars going on, yeah. and people are captured, and, mm -hmm. you know, even that uh, the TV program Homeland on yeah. Showtime, which, of course, it's a drama, but, you know, one of the main characters was held hostage for several years, and he comes back, and he, he's very conflicted about whether he's loyal to Look at the Patty Hearst story, Patty a great Hearst example. Story. Yeah, Patty yeah. Hearst was yeah. not a bank robber, right. but yet enough time with bank robbers, and what did Patty Hearst begin to do? We'll explain that a little later in the handout, but it's absolutely true. Who wants to give us the, that last paragraph there? Many addicts. Thank you. Uh, many addicts identify with their drug of choice, like an abused woman identifies with her abusive husband. She says he beats me up a bit, but I know he loves me. Mm -hmm. I know that things will change. It won't always be like this. Yeah, so watch this. A woman came into my office, and she had a black eye, and her husband had his third DUI, and he was on probation. Raj's philosophy. I can judge any man by the condition of his woman. What does that mean? That's deep. I can judge any man by the condition of his woman. If you come into my office and your wife has a black eye, I'm not fucking impressed with you, right? And when your wife comes into my office and her eyes are sparkling and clear and she's got confidence and she's got a swagger in her step, that's a reflection of you as a man. Is that making sense? Yeah. So she comes into my office and he's there and he's kind of looking sheepishly at me because he knows he's on probation. He's like, I don't want to get in any trouble. And so I could have said, which I didn't say, I could have said, your husband is a major loser. He's got three DUIs and he hasn't worked in five years. You have a four-year-old kid together. Grab your child and run as fast as you can because if you don't, there's a 400% chance your kid's going to be an alcoholic. That's not very clever. But what would have happened if I would have said that? I don't want to speculate. What would have happened based on just this little bit of Stockholm Syndrome knowledge? If I would have said that out loud, how would she have responded? She'd you're the worst therapist in the world. And this black guy, I said some things to deserve to get that. And by the way, I'm going to change how I respond to him. He's going to go to AA tomorrow, and he'll be sober, and he'll be doing fantastic. Right? Entrenching even harder. So here's what I said. There seems to be some concerns in your relationship, scanning back and forth. Right? Give her an opportunity to talk. What concerns you about your relationship? Remember, we deal with motivational interviewing therapy. We're dealing with ambivalence. Ambivalence in shaping the way she's thinking. 
what concerns you about your relationship? And she looks at me. She goes, well, I don't feel loved anymore. I don't feel special. When, when I come home, I'm always worried, is he drinking or is he not drinking? And I say this question, what would a healthy relationship feel like for you? Wow, that's powerful. What would a healthy relationship feel like for you? And she looks down, she goes, it would feel like when we first were being together, he really cared about me. He asked me about my day. I felt loved and I felt cherished. I felt safe, right? If you had a magic wand and could wave it over your husband, what would be different about him? Now she begins to tear up. She goes, well, he stopped drinking and go to AA. I could have said all that shit. I know how to say this stuff out loud, right? But if I say it, it's not her noble right. truth. As she hears herself speak, she learns what she believes. As she hears herself speak, she hears her own truth about how things could be and how things should be. And that's empowering. If it's my idea, she might entrench against it. But if it's her idea, it's going to be a fantastic idea. And now she might even begin to challenge him. Why don't I feel special with you? Why don't I feel like we have a healthy relationship? Why are you still drinking? Why aren't you going to AA? Because those are her conclusions. Is that making sense? We call it the Socratic method. Socrates would use that. You know, I'm going to get you somewhere. It's like playing chess. You've got to be three, four, or five moves ahead. I know where you're at right now. Same thing with heroin. What concerns you about your heroin addiction? Nothing. Well, that concerns me. Why is your mom in tears in my office? She worries too much. If your mom was on heroin, how would you feel? So you've got to break this whole thing down through a series of questions. I, if I come out attacking, it has the opposite effect. And they'll entrench and they'll say, I love my hair when you're a clown, get out of my face, you know, ponytail, do good, or go bother somebody else, right? We've heard that before. I have that, not you guys, but I've heard that. All right, how about the back page, please? How about the back page? Who wants to read that paragraph? I'll read it. Sadly, when family and friends tell the vulnerable victim, your heroin is killing you, your alcohol is killing you, can't you see what happened to your life? The victim addict, who you would expect to say, wow, that's true, I need to stop this shit, actually begins to embrace their captor, drug, drug even tighter, even though the drug of choice is destroying them, abusing them, and making them look stupid. They have, they have so entrenched themselves that they are in such denial that they begin to believe that people are talking bad about the drug of choice and actually about the enemy, or actually about the enemy. Is that amazing? That's called entrenchment. So I did a little uh, intervention. I had a um, girl that we you know, were good friends in high school and stuff, and she ended up marrying a guy who was an alcoholic. She had two kids with him. Her oldest son was a champion state wrestler. He was a mixed martial artist. He had a local title uh, fight, and he won. So he was, at that time when I met him, the welterweight title fighter for the cage fighting thing, right? So he's a big, swaggery kid. He's like, he's like 170 pounds in a cage, 185 in front of me. He's got a beautiful girlfriend on Fulbright Scholarship at Wayne State University. She's a ring card girl. She doesn't drink or smoke weed. So he comes in there with his mom. He's got his second DUI, and he's got three MIPs. So you guys know the rule. One DUI is about 50-50. Two DUI is 75% chance you stack on some MIPs. His odds are really high as kids an alcoholic, right? So he comes in my office, mom wants me to convince him to go to AA, I got to do an evaluation for him for court, put a, written, put a written relapse prevention plan together and get this kid sober. So I bring him in the office and I'm talking to him and we'll call him Jeremy. I said, Jeremy, we're really concerned about your drinking, you got three MIPs, this is your second DUI, they're going to put you away for a time in jail. And I said, your mom's really worried about you, you know, the way you're acting and stuff like that. I mean, you're an athlete, you shouldn't be putting poison in your body, uh, do you have an open mind? And as I'm kind of doing my regular thing, the girlfriend says, can I say something, please? I'm like, of course you can. She goes, Jeremy, if you drink again, I will leave you. And breaks into tears. That chilled my spine. I will leave you. Breaks into tears, right? So mom's crying. You know, she's crying. I'm like, all right. So what would have been a logical response for Jeremy in my office with his mom there and his pretty intelligent girlfriend there right in front of a therapist? What should Jeremy have said? That's what wow, social skills true. 101. I need to stop this shit. Even if he doesn't mean it, he should at least perform that for me, right? Now, what I'm about to tell you might actually blow your mind. I'm usually not you know, dumbfounded in my office. He looks at me, he leans forward, kind of pushes the chest out, he goes, that bitch ain't going anywhere. I'm like, no, Jeremy, no, no, she's right there, you know? And I didn't say that loud, I was thinking that. So mom jumps up out of her seat. She goes, Jeremy, how dare you disrespect your girlfriend? If you drink one more time, I'm kicking you out of the house. I'm not going to pay for your attorney. You're going to be on your own. 
So now I'm in damage control mode. Oh, oh everybody's, I know we're upset here. Uh, Jeremy is talking about alcohol. Your girlfriend's making a very good point. Everybody cares about you here. Um, Two-thirds of all homicide victims have alcohol in their system. Alcohol kills more people than all illegal drugs combined. And as I'm talking smack about alcohol, what do you think begins to happen to Jeremy in his seat? begins to move forward towards me and begins to posture towards me. I'm thinking, man, I'm 10 years past my prime now. You know what I mean? <laughs> this kid's a good fighter. You know what I mean? I'm like, whoa, Jeremy, Jeremy, this is not a personal attack. I'm just saying that if alcohol was your friend, you'd be able to be able to show me all these benefits from drinking. All you can show me are negatives. Let's go even deeper. You don't have to be an alcoholic or an addict to benefit from not using drugs or alcohol. A lot of people don't drink, and a lot of people don't get high, not because their mom or dad's watching them, because life's very competitive. If you're going to fight in a cage, you don't want to have your, your hands bound together due to the aftermath of abusing drugs and alcohol. And uh, you think that my magical words would have cured Jeremy, right? So the point where I want to brag you guys and said, Jeremy, never drink again. Right, right. He's going to walk into the room right now, and I put my arms around him. He's a heavyweight champion. No, no. Jeremy kept drinking. He lost his girlfriend, didn't have a good lawyer, and he did 120 days in jail. And I get a phone call from this guy. He calls me on the phone, first day out of jail. Uh, hey, what's going on? He's got a little bit of a buzz. I go, I know who it is. Who is this? He goes, it's Jeremy Raj. I go, Jeremy, how you doing, man? I'm doing okay. You got to help me. So a chance for compromise. Well, what do you want me to help you with? I want my girlfriend back. What happened? She left me. Well, are you surprised by that? I mean, she said she was going to leave you. I didn't think she was serious. Those are his words. I didn't think she was serious. I saw her face. I heard her words. I thought she was serious as a heart attack, right? So he goes, we got to get her back. So I'm kind of thinking. I said, okay, Jeremy, I'll help you get her back if you do one thing for me. He goes, well, what's that? I go, go to 30 AA meetings in 30 days, and I'll then arrange a meeting for you, me, and your mom, and your girlfriend to talk about your possibility of getting back together. He goes, well, I'm not going back to AA. And I said, and you don't want your girlfriend back. Thank you. Click. Remember, some people will choose a chemical over another human being. Some people get their intimate needs met from a chemical rather than another human being. We have kids that are smoking so much weed, they don't need a girlfriend. I say, do you have a girlfriend? They go, I don't want one. I'm like, well, why not? Because all they ever do is complain about my pot smoking. I go, that's because women are supposed to do that. They have this like gluing, civilizing effect on men. If it wasn't for women, all the men would be swinging off those trees, killing each other. Women say, get up off the tree, get home, eat your broccoli, and be home by 5 o'clock. We need women. They cement us together, right? Is that making sense? Yeah. yeah all right. Do I sound like Is this okay? Uh, all right. I'm sorry. Okay, how about the last paragraph? And they need men. Build shopping malls. Okay. <laughs> they don't need us anymore. We're just lucky to have them. Different philosophy. All right. Who wants to read the last paragraph? Yeah, we'll get a little rough. Last paragraph, please. Somebody volunteer. Thank you. When we point out that alcohol or drugs are holding you hostage and preventing you from teaching your, or reaching your full potential, please understand it's not a personal attack. Yeah, tell Jeremy that it was not a personal attack. Go ahead. Yeah. We are only pointing out the facts and the reality of your current condition. If we hold up a mirror in your, in your present situation and all you see is ugly, if it's not your, the fault of the mirror... Isn't that deep? If you hold up a mirror in your situation and all you see is ugly, it's not the fault of the mirror. Yeah. The mirror is, the only, is only a reflection of what is real. Please see the the drugs for all, all, all of what they are, the enemy. Please see the sobriety for what it is, freedom. Is that making sense to hand out? And they can pull this whole thing down in, in two pages back in front, right? You guys ever watch that TV show, Jersey Shore? I'll prove another point on this, right? Mm -hmm. So there was a woman named Sammy Sweetheart. She's probably the best out of all ladies on the whole bunch, right? And Sammy Sweetheart had a boyfriend named Ronnie. Ronnie was what's called a juice head gorilla, which means he's on steroids and he's drinking all the time and he's cheating on her. So the rest of the girls in the house get really fed up with this behavior, and they write uh, uh, Sammy Sweetheart a letter. It says, Dear Sammy Sweetheart, we love and care about you. Ronnie is an idiot. He is drink drinking all the time and cheating on you. Please leave Ronnie and have a wonderful life. Now, when Sammy was handed that letter, what would have been a logical response on her behalf? What should she have done or said? Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Or, Ronnie, what the hell's going on? Is this true? Because if it's true, I'm going to leave you. And instead of her doing any of those things, what did she actually do? She got angry at all her female friends and held on to Ronnie even tighter. You just want it for yourself. 
Stockholm Syndrome. Does that make any sense? Mm -hmm. All right, so what is Stockholm Syndrome? It's a psychological phenomenon in which the hostage or victim will express sympathy, empathy, and positive feelings towards their captors, uh, sometimes to the point of defending, caring for, and identifying with them. These feelings are considered irrational and illogical in light of the danger, mistreatment, and risk endured by the victims. And so Stockholm Syndrome can be seen as a form of traumatic bonding, <coughs> which does not necessarily require a hostage scenario. It describes strong emotional ties that develop between two or more persons where one person is the abuser and the other person is the victim. That's the actual photograph of the robbery in Stockholm, uh, Sweden. They put a camera in there. All right, so what is Stockholm Syndrome? And according to Freud, the Freudian view is that one commonly used hypothesis to explain the effect of Stockholm Syndrome is based on Freudian theory. It suggests that the bonding is the individual's response to the trauma of being victimized. Identifying with the aggressor is one way the ego defends itself. When a victim accepts the same values, identifies with, connects emotionally, and takes care of the aggressor, they, they can cease to be perceived cognitively as an extreme threat. Is that making sense? Yep. Mm -hmm. So what is Stockholm Syndrome on deeper level? This state can increase to the point when outsiders are viewed as a threat. A genuine hostility can develop in the victim towards anyone that the perpetrator doesn't like. The perpetrator and the victim can help each other get out of this mess, may become the internal dialogue of the victim. This happens during you know, substance abuse interventions as well. So people that do and think things against their best interests have internalized their own oppression. We see some people that vote against their economic interests, people that glamorize drugs, people that stay in abusive relationships, and people that uh, defend their abuser, and in people that are addicted to <coughs> drugs. And sorry, reality is not optional. Abuse treatment methods, okay? So when we deal with Stockholm Syndrome, we're dealing with the defense mechanisms that tie into that. Denial, distraction, delay, and divide. And so people in a state of Stockholm Syndrome use various defense mechanisms to reduce their anxiety and alter the reality of their condition. And so these are your key phrases and words to break this down. What concerns you about your current relationship? What concerns you about your heroin usage? What concerns you about your gambling, or gambling activities? What would a healthy relationship feel like? What would a healthy life feel like? I always like saying this to people. How would it feel to have one year sober? How would it feel to have five years sober? How would it feel to have... They need to start looking at that because they're always looking in the past, not looking at how things could be, right? Um, and obviously the magic wand statement is very powerful in therapy as well, right? And so um, here's a really interesting thing. I'm so excited about this. All right, so interactive cards. Has anybody ever seen these cards before? No one has? Interactive cards? So family integration systems theory? So lots of people that actually come from tra traumatized childhoods, right, will do what they call inner child work, right? Mm -hmm. The inner child work ties into we have all these different facets to our personality. We have the taskmaster that tells us to be to work on time, right? We have the rebel that tells us break that window down the street. We have all these different subcomponents, right? So please open that up and uh, open up the cards and kind of share them and pass them through. I wasn't aware of this. A woman came to my office and she goes, you've got to use these cards to help people. I had no idea what those cards were used for. So when I cracked them open, I saw all these wonderful images. I was like, oh my God, these cards are fantastic. So many of my female um, uh, clients have had all these horrible traumatic things happen to them, right? And so as I began looking at these cards, I thought to myself, here's a way to open up that conversation. Here's a way to begin to talk about what that experience felt like. As you guys know, that people who have been traumatized don't oftentimes have the words for the feeling or the experience. But if I give them a bunch of images, they can point to an image and say, that's what it felt like to be there under those circumstances. That's what it felt like when no one believed me. And that's what it felt like when I couldn't get off of alcohol. And that's very powerful. So these interactive cards are available on Amazon as well. You want people to pick a random card like without looking no, at No, just, just pass them through. Oh. Yeah, just pass them through. <laughs> that could be a good exercise. Right, it could be, right? right? And so I'll no, kind of explain. Ones, the ones that are blank. Yeah, those are, you can actually create your own. That's you why they have blank ones. Okay. So Sharon Eckstein is the um, illustrator that created these cards. I think she's a genius, right? Because these cards are so multifaceted. So me not knowing what the actual usage of the cards was, was actually a blessing. So I've had many female clients come into my office. I'll give you one example. We'll call this girl named Nikki, right? So Nikki... Her mother, uh, when I went to high school together, we were really close friends. Nikki's mom had a bad addiction, and I helped get her sober, did a free intervention on her, and um, she was doing great. She had about one year sober. 
So she was always worried about her daughter. Her daughter was rebellious, sneaking out of the house tonight, that kind of stuff. And so her mom calls me from the hospital and says, Nikki has just overdosed on drugs. And she's 16 years old. I'm like, oh my God. And she's been cutting herself too, right? And so the psychiatrist in the hospital wants to put her in a mental hospital and says she's got paranoid schizophrenia. I'm like, wow, is that some shit, right? Paranoid schizophrenia, anybody knows about these illnesses, right? In a 16-year-old, that's like really, really rare. Mm -hmm. Substance abuse disorder, much more mm -hmm. likely, right? And with a mind that has that, right? So I said, Danielle, I'm not really feeling this whole paranoid schizophrenia thing. Well, she's saying that people are out together. She's saying that, you know, that, that the people are trying to kill her and they know all about her and they follow her around. I go, Danielle, I'm not really feeling this. So I, and the psychiatrist insists on bringing her to um, Havenwick. And I said, tell a psychiatrist, um, how much time did he spend with her? And then Danielle says, well, he met with her for five minutes and gave her that diagnosis. And I said, which I'm not supposed to say, tell him he's a fucking idiot. And you're going to take your daughter out of that hospital and we're going to meet tomorrow. And that's what we did. So I sit down with Nikki. Because I got her mom sober, she really likes me, right? And so I talked to her a little bit. And I said to her, Nikki, I've worked with other people before that are like your age. And when they cut themselves, oftentimes something really bad has happened to them in their past. Now, I'm not putting any pressure on you. You're in a very safe place here. Nothing can happen to you. And I'm not going to send you any bad place based on what you say to me. I just want to understand. Because you overdosed recently. I really care about you. And I really care about, you, about your mom. Can you tell me if it's okay? Did anything bad ever happen to you? Or even recently? And she kind of looks down and she goes, yeah. And I go, well, if you feel comfortable, you can tell me a little bit. I don't want any specifics, but if you can just tell me the, the general thing that happened to you, I want to listen to understand. <clears throat> then she says to me, well, I'm, I have a boy that I really like, and he's 18 years old, and I wanted to be with him. And so my mom has me, I, I can't leave the house after 10 o'clock. And he was having a birthday party. And he said to me, why don't you come to my birthday party? And I told him I can't go to the party because I can't leave after 10. He said, no problem, we'll pick you up. But she snuck out of her window, and three boys picked her up for the birthday party. I said, okay, Nikki, what happened after that? She goes, well, they drive me to his house and went to the basement, and we started drinking together. I go, okay. And she goes, everything was going pretty good. But then after they started drinking, they started telling me to do certain things. And I said, I'm not going to do those things. And they told me that if I didn't do those things, they were going to contact my mom and call the police, and I was going to get arrested for an MIP. And they said, if you get arrested for an MIP, you can never go to college. And I want to go to college. So I started doing those things. I go, Nikki, I'm so sorry. And she goes, then they made me do other things too, and I started crying and screaming. And I go, I can only imagine what that was like, Nikki. She goes, then I heard somebody coming down the stairs. And I go, oh, okay. And she goes, then I thought I was going to be safe. I looked, there was a man coming down the stairs, and I could tell that he was an older man. And I thought I was going to be safe. And she starts doing that mile-long stare. And I go, what did the man do? She goes, he came down to the bottom of the stairs and just watched. And they kept doing it. Right. So what did I say at that point? It's not very therapeutic. I said, Nikki, I'm so sorry that happened to you. I'm so sorry that those people mistreated you like that. And I said, that will never happen to you again. If I would have been there, I would have broke all their fucking jaws and thrown them through a window. That will never happen to you again. I can't explain to you why bad things happen to good people, but you're a really good person. And I'm so proud of you for telling me this. And I'm so proud of you for talking about all these issues that you're going through. You have the courage of a lion. That was a very intense session, as you can imagine, right? So these cards I began to use, right? And so the interactive cards are used for doing parts work. The mind is not unitary. It consists of multiplicity and various sub-personalities interacting with each other, much like a family. And this is what the cards are used for. I want to tell you guys, these cards have never been used for this before. This is like, you know, groundbreaking new stuff. I got permission from the manufacturers of the cards to, to promote this new way of using them for treatment. Is it off of Amazon or something? Yeah, absolutely, all day long. So they're designed to do parts work. You can see the firefighter card there. And so think about your internal dialogue. The firefighter card is used to symbolize the part of our personality that puts out the burning fire of our emotional, mental, and psychic pain. Let's say, for example, we had a really bad childhood, and those memories start popping back up again. Now the firefighter comes in and wants to blast all that pain out that could be going to the casino, that could be stealing out of the store, that could be sticking a needle in your arm. Right? That's the firefighter. He doesn't have a bad agenda. He just wants the fire to go out. The fire is the pain. Is that making sense? Yeah. So the next illustration, so I create a new method to use these cards in the treatment of addiction and trauma. 
Some people can't express themselves well with words. Visual cards are a safe medium to show what it felt like. Visual cards are not static. They are dynamic like songs. They mean something different to each person. The cards can elicit subconscious thoughts and bring previous memories to the forefront. It changes the therapy dynamic, allowing the client to lead. It allows uh, closure and speeds up the process of dealing with deep trauma. I really believe that when it comes to PTSD and trauma, you're not supposed to be the person that initiates it. You can bring up the topic, but they have to lead. That's how you do that properly. They have to lead. When they want to give you a little bit, you say, that's fine. You never push that stuff, right? You can open up some big, big wounds there, right? So those are some examples of the different cards that are there. So these cards have been very effective. And here's an example when I first began to use them. Another girl was named Shannon, and, I, and she had disappeared. And she ran out to buy some um, ecstasy one night. And her mom didn't know what was going on. She, she spent the night over at a house in Girls Point. And her mom told me she picked her up after that night, and she was never the same. She just kept staring out the window and was expressionless. And she was, I knew something happened to my daughter. And so she had taken Shannon to 20 different therapists, and she would never open up. And uh, Shannon was really not a big fan of therapists. I got one thing that's going for me really well. I don't look like anybody else's father. So there's no transference <laughs> with me. You know what I mean? When I walk into a session, I don't remind anybody of their dad. Does that make any sense? No, really, I don't. Not so far. So I'm pretty lucky, right? So there's no transference with me, right? And so when she came into the office, you know, I began to talk to her about you know, I heard that you've, you've changed when you were 15 years old. You began cutting in my experience. And then I began asking her the question. And very similar, she went across the border into Detroit. There was three white drug dealers that were in there selling ecstasy. They said, you can't buy ecstasy until you drink with us first. Then they did all kinds of really bad things to her. And they began to threaten her. By the way, I forgot to mention to you. When I asked Nikki about that diagnosis of paranoid schizophrenia, I forgot that this is a very important part of the story. I said, Nikki, when you told a psychiatrist that people were watching you and they're trying to hurt you and trying to kill you, were you actually referring to the boys that did those bad things to you? And she said, yeah. They said if I ever told anything about anybody about that, they would kill me and my family. That's why I couldn't sleep at night. That's why I was telling my mom people were out to get me. That's what was driving all those comments. Is that making sense? Mm -hmm. So the same thing happened with Shannon and as well. And watching at the stairs. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You yeah. spend five minutes with a 16-year-old and give him paranoid schizophrenia. I'm not impressed with right. that. And so when we deal with addiction, I was able to show Shannon these cards, right? And so I said, Shannon, you mentioned that you went through a pretty difficult period in your life. Please pick out three or more cards that represent and symbolize and show what that felt like for you. And those are the three cards that Shannon picked out. When she was mistreated, she felt like she was going to die when those three guys were doing that bad stuff to her. When she came home, she felt like she was isolated. And she'd always have the, the shadow as the image of those larger men and the trauma and how she felt very weak and tiny and vulnerable to them. This opened up an entire dialogue in a, in a matter of two and three sessions. Is that making sense? Mm -hmm. And so this is a very effective way of dealing with this. As an interesting side note, I do a lot of education programs for people, right, for part of the court requirements. So they come from for marijuana education program, alcohol education program. And so many of my female clients have been harmed at fraternities and at various parties and that kind of stuff. So. What I do, I'm not sure if it's therapeutic or not, when a young man comes to me for the education program, not for therapy, I'll say, oh, what fraternity do you belong to? He'll say, well, I belong to this fraternity. I go, what's your position there? He'll say, well, I'm the president or I'm the activities director. And I say, that's so great to know. And I write that name of sorority down. I say, I meet lots of female clients. And if any of my female clients come in and tell me that they went to your party and something bad happened to them, I'll do everything possible in my power to make sure that hell comes to meet you. You are now responsible for every female that comes to your party. That's somebody's daughter, that's somebody's sister, that's somebody's future wife. And we can't have you guys running around damaging all our females. I don't know if that's therapeutic. It's educational, though, right? It's educational. It's, uh, educational. I think it's educational. Motivational interview. Yeah, Correct. EMI, extreme motivational interview therapy. All right. Yeah. And so, but they're, it's not for therapy, though. It's court mandated. And it's, I got, um, they tell me they agree with that. Yeah. Yeah, they don't seem to argue with me on that. No. No one yet. We'll see. Past my prime. Ah. I want to formally apologize to you on behalf of whoever did this to you. That should have never happened to you. You were a victim. You had nothing to deserve that. I don't know why bad things happen to good people. You will triumph over this. The best part of your life is yet to come. But people sometimes get mad at me because I do this. Uh, you have this Pollyanna-ish, overly optimistic thing. 
if you're not going to provide hope to people, don't be a therapist. I'm not trying to be mean. Like, you know, work at a bowling alley, you know, wash dishes. <laughs> Leave people alone. If you can't provide them with hope. My, my philosophy, the person says to me, I've been in five treatment centers, ten treatment centers, I'm still using drugs. As long as you can breathe and you're in my office, you can get sober. As long as you can breathe and you're in my office, there's hope to get through this therapy. Is that making sense? Yeah. We, we can't be the people that say what you can't do. That's, society does that for you really well. They do that stuff. We have to be the cheerleaders. There's nothing that you can't do. My primary function is to help you reach your full potential. And even I'm not aware of what that is. Unlimited, right? And so the next part here, let's just kind of talk about these abuse cards used and other kinds of things. Anybody want to guess when I do this card right here, nine times out of ten, what type of client with what issue will pull this card? Anybody want to speculate? What was this person's primary issue that pulls this card? Shame. But yeah, but ties back into what's their, what? Alcohol dependency. The guy that had a drink every single day, if he didn't drink, he'd begin to shake. That's your alcohol dependency guy. So what did it feel like to, to be an alcoholic? He points to that card. This is what it felt like to have a drink every day. Otherwise, I would shake and go through withdrawals. All right, next card. And I kind of said, this is what it felt like you had nine times out of ten. The hardcore daily alcoholic, alcohol dependency. All right. How about the next card? Nine times out of ten, what type of client, what kind of issue will pull this card? The heroin addicts. The heroin addicts. This is what it feels like to be strung out on heroin. Everyone's like, it's the only card in the whole deck that's only grayscale. Yep. Mm -hmm. And so everything becomes gray. We're wandering. We're lost. Everyone tells us we can't get out of this. I have to do this every single day. The emaciated look, the whole thing ties into it. You know, that's what heroin or opiate addiction looks like. Is that amazing? It's a, like a little mini shooting gallery. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Next image. Nine times out of ten when a person pulls this card, what's their primary issue? What happened to them? Sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. Sexual abuse. So, without even having a discussion, when clients pull out certain cards, I'm able to get a better insight as to what's going on. Yeah. But even, but even more specific, though, right? Because we can have some, some patterns that are beginning to form with this. Yeah. And I, I can't tell you how the most recent young lady I worked with was working in a, in a topless bar, right? And so there used to be topless bars. Now they're just brothels, okay? It's completely out of control. Everyone's on heroin. They're competing. She told me, in the old days, if you were a stripper and you were doing like additional favors, the other girls would throw you down the stairs because you were bad for business. Expectations got too high. She says, nowadays, everyone's doing really bad stuff in there. And so I got her to get out of that world. And as we began talking about you know, her life, I had her pull out the cards, and she pointed that card as well. I know she had a foster care background as well, was in and out of foster care in Texas. Her mom was a cocaine addict, and so was a dad. And so she begins to talk about this experience that she had to go through. And I said, well, if you feel comfortable, you know, four sessions into it, she mentioned that um, from the ages of 8 to 12, they would go every summer when uh, they were swimming, the boyfriend would shower with her after swimming. And I said, well, why is that? She goes, my mom told me after I got done swimming that, that Bill had to shower with me. And then he would do those things to me, and she starts crying. And I go, and I went through the regular routine of things, and then she talks about her mom. She goes, I don't think my mom knew, though. And I go, let me ask you a question, Angela. If you had a baby right now when she was eight years old, would you be okay with her showering with your boyfriend? And she goes, of course not. And I go, so let's say best case scenario that your mom didn't know, but subconsciously put you in that position, but the worst case scenario is that your mom knew that because Bill was paying all the bills, wasn't he? She said, yeah. And if Bill left us, we wouldn't have any place to live and we wouldn't have any food. And she told me that every single day. So I had to process all that nonsense with her and get her to get away from that Stockholm Syndrome, even with her mother, seeing her mother as this innocent party in this abuse relationship when mom wasn't innocent. Is that making sense? Mm -hmm. All right. So PTSD, sexual victimization, and so the use of interactive cards. Here's the best part of the program that I've developed, okay? We go through all the bad stuff. We identify the bad stuff, and we process the bad stuff. Here's the fun part. I then have the people pick out, what do you want your future to look and feel like? Pick out three or more cards that represent and symbolize what you will feel like in the future and what you want to feel like. Tied into success, money, education, family life, health, and goals. These are very common cards that the people will actually pull out of the deck and say, I want my future to look and feel like this. Then I have them photograph those cards on their smartphones and look at them every single day. The visual imagery, I want them to envision what a future can look like, what a healing future can feel like. Is that making sense? 
So we use these photographs in, on the cell phone three times per day minimum. Visualize your success to make it actionable. Focus on the future. Avoid dwelling on the past. You did not do anything wrong. You deserve a great life. The trials and tribulations of life develop character, insight, wisdom, and strength. You will be better from this experience. Is that making sense? And so with these cards, you know, it helps people develop insight. Um, and I also have another method I do. So at the point, if they're doing really well, if they're really thriving and, and, and positive at this point, I say, you really seem to have some really good answers and insight right now. So you seem to have some good insight. You seem like you have some good thoughts. Will you please write down a pep talk to yourself and write it down in a letter? Use your own words to help motivate you through the tough times and keep you on track to your goals. Then after they write that letter out, I self-address the envelope to them, and I mail it out to them 30 days to 90 days later. When that letter comes in, I swear to you, it has a powerful impact in their own words. It's like a time machine that captures that moment of that beautiful therapy session and brings it right back to them to re-inspire them, to recharge them. Is that making sense? So they write the letter. You keep the letter. Yep, and then hold on to it. And arbitrarily, within 30, 90 days, I mail it to them, self-addressed in their own handwriting. Yeah, absolutely. Is that making sense? Mm -hmm. All right, I'm almost done. So Raj is all about drug-free, uh, and uh, my website has all kinds of free stuff on it. Fortune Favors of Bull is available free, all kinds of free audio, and thank you for your time. Woo! fast toward the end here. We had to just rush him right through. I'm so sorry. Too no, time. no, you did a really great okay. job. Uh, don't forget to fill out your evaluation forms, please. And, uh, where are those? Where are those forms? Are the, they in the, the book? The forms should be on the left side. It was underneath the um, advertisement for the HIV online uh, seminar op opportunity. Got one? Okay. So again. Oh. Well, okay. Sure. There you go. I will take the book. Yeah. Okay. I'm the house. I will take the whole thing. I'm like, I'm sitting right here. I have a book in the box. I didn't read that. No, I have a book. No, no, no. Plus, you're from Rochester Hills. Okay, so again, we have the answer for the continuing education online, but right behind that is where your evaluation form is. Just you kindly run through that for us. When you have it completed, you can go to the desk and Bridget will have your uh, certificate ready for you. Uh, and I, I really appreciate your time and the fact that you've come out today. I hope you've enjoyed 